first time ever. Hear you loud and clearly. Uh, and it was going place. That stuff's great. But the game is not a roguelike. Boomer shooter. <laughs> Bang. Hello, this is John St. John, and you're listening to KWEP In The Keep, bringing you all the hits from the finest in the world of gaming and entertainment. Now sit back and relax as the drowned god Cathala lulls your mind with the tastiest talk in town. Welcome to another chapter of In The Keep podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, the Motherlode. The Keep is a collective of gaming enthusiasts compelled by the drowned god Cathala to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. Welcome. Happy fucking new year. Hope you guys enjoyed Burning Bridges with Bridgeburner, which was our first like little feature of the year. Uh, if you haven't already checked it out, it's five hours long and I get pretty tipsy at the end and a little tired because, you know, I'm staying up all night, but fell asleep at the end of that one. It was great fun. Uh, just if you're not already a big fan of Bridgeburner, you got to be on his stream. Bridgeburner number four over on Twitch, and uh, make sure you follow the Hellforge Discord, get all his shit, just everything he does, man. The Age of Hell is going to be one of the most prolific Doom mods ever made, no question about it. Total conversion, as a matter of fact. So, beyond that. But, for now, it is time to get back into In The Keep, the flagship, the Starship Enterprise of podcasts. Uh, I'm, maybe I'm tooting my own horn there, but... You know, I like what we do here. So this week's guest is Ivar Hill. I couldn't think of anyone better to really kick off the new year with. It's a new year, new time, new game. Core Decay, his project, is... We're going to talk about this a lot. We're going to go in cycles around it in the podcast. But this game is just... Something there's something special about it. We're we're on the precipice of where Boomer Shooter, Doom Clone, Quake Clone, whatever becomes Deus Ex Clone, you know, and it, System Shock Two Clone. Uh, that's not what Quarter K really is, but we're moving into that era where we repeat the cycle yet again, and you go from the basic first person shooter to the immersive sim, and Quarter K is looking to be that kind of beautiful project. It has been picked up by 3D Realms uh, because Fred has incredible taste, and so do I, (laughs) obviously. I hope that you enjoy this wonderful conversation with Ivar. But first, we're going to play a little music by the great and powerful Immorpher. And when it's over, you will be in the key with Ivar Hill of Core Decay.
Today's guest is Mr. Ivar Hill. He is the developer behind the epic game Core Decay, which since Realms Deep has been picked up by 3D Realms, and that is fucking awesome. I'm really fucking happy to hear that, dude. Like, I... I've been looking at your game for, I think, how long have you been developing it for? Uh, it's been just about, uh, I think, three and a half years at this point. So, for so it's at, been a while. At least two and a half of those three and a half years, I've been kind of like quietly following this project. I'm like, I don't know if this will ever actually be anything. But you always, like, from the jump, looked super professional. Like, you know, you, you're doing this as if you know what you're doing, which a lot of indie devs, I'm looking at them and they're like, yeah, this is never going to... Like, I really believe in the project, but I don't know if it's ever actually going to get off the ground. But from, from the jump, like, this this dude's got a plan. Like, he, he's got something going on in here that's special and different. And, but then, you know, time keeps going. And until I knew, like, okay, he's got funding now, then I was 100% all in. So... Well, I'm really happy that, that it gives that impression. The, the secret is, of course, that I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, no, but... Um, until you make it right. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's also why it's actually been in development for a while, you know, um, uh, that it's always been that sort of project where I'm letting it take its time uh, and that, you know, you're not in a rush. Uh, and that's really kind of, uh, I, I feel like that's also like the kind of case with, with passion projects in general, which is like at the end of the day, what, what Core Decay is and how it started out and how it started being developed. Um, like if you're not, uh, if you're unaware uh, just in general, um, I guess I can sort of fill you in on on sort of the background of its development and how it sort of came to be. Um, uh, so really, uh, it, it comes down to the fact that I, um, well, I, I'm a professional game developer in the sense that I work in the industry. Uh, I have a full-time job. I'm doing game development, uh, not on Core Decay, uh, but my day job is different. And uh, I'm working there on... Um, uh, what is essentially a, a free-to-play cross-platform MMO, uh, which is, uh, the work itself is a lot of fun, and the people in particular that I work for are great, you know, so I really enjoy working there. Uh, however, like, this subject matter, like, I've always felt like I really want to do, um, like, I want to develop something that goes more into that uh, old-school, single-player, like, that sort of experience, because that's also what's the most meaningful to me, Um so that's sort of how Core Decay got started. Like I, I had a day job and I had my full time work as like as a game studio as, as a game developer. Um, and as much as I enjoy that and still enjoy it uh, and still and continue to do that, uh, I always had that feeling like okay, but I also have all of these uh, more like passion plans of like I would really like to make a game like this. So that's sort of how how that got started. Uh, that being said, and I don't think I really talked about this before. Uh, but it might be interesting to know. Uh, Core Decay in general originated as a very different kind of game than what you see today, which mm-hmm. might be difficult to believe in the sense that, you know, it's very cohesive at this point in terms of what we're like, what kind of game it wants to be. Um, but to put it simply, I think that since this was a solo project and it's been a solo development for two years uh, or more, two and a half years, probably even, uh, it, making something that essentially amounts to a full-scale immersive sim, that's a fairly daunting task. Yeah. Uh, even, you know, with a team uh, of any size, it's its a very large-scale project. 
Uh, so starting out, that was not really my intention um, because I felt like that was really past the sort of capabilities of me at the time as a solo dev. Uh, like despite the fact that I had a fair amount of experience in like most areas of game development, that's still, as you say, or you know, as I pointed out, it's like it's a lot of work and it's it's a it's, it's difficult to to make that into like a full solo project like that. So. Quarterly actually started out way more um, akin to like an more of a classic retro shooter than an immersive sim. Uh, it was far more of an arcade-like experience. Uh, my like inspiration sources there were actually mostly um, like I never actually really grew up with Doom or Quake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I play those games later in life. They were not part of my, my like my childhood or my teenage years or my growing up. So they they're not actually as influential to me as. I think there are to a lot of people in this broader community, right? Uh, because we have so many people here who are like, you know, they're defined by by games like, uh, well, Doom and Quake in particular. Uh, and that was always, like, obviously, like today, I've played those games quite a bit. And I really like, they have such a huge part in like the DNA of not just the shooter genre, but like the, the entire game industry and, and scene that... Um, like I really appreciate them for that, but they never had like I never had that personal connection to those particular games. Uh, what I did play a lot of uh, was well, first of all, the original Unreal, mm-hmm. um, with its uh, you know really like slower paced, more exploration heavy story driven approach. Uh, but also Descent, the Six Degrees of Freedom shooter uh, from '95, which you know it isn't really like a boots on the ground FPS, but it's. Like, Descent and Doom, to me, they're very similar in a lot of ways. Uh, Like, at least on a surface level. Uh, They have the same kind of space station aesthetic. They have the same kind of um, overall level flow of, like, being really focused around open-ended exploration, finding key cards, getting to, like, different sectors and whatnot. So, you know, there's a lot of similarities to me between Doom and Descent. Uh, And Descent was really, like, one of my first... One of the first games that really defined my growing up. Uh, so uh, that's sort of where I started with Quartet K. I, I felt like, okay, I, I want to make something of my own in my free time, uh, and I'm going to draw inspiration from uh, from basically those two games, Descent and Unreal. Uh, and, and I was sort of imagining it as a boots on the ground descent in a way. Uh, but at that point, there wasn't really a heavy story focus, and there wasn't really like many immersive sim elements. It was far more. Uh, what you would perhaps describe as classic Doom or Quake style, uh, like a Doom or Quake style shooter, uh, because that is easier to do uh, on a at least on a surface level, right? Like it still takes a huge amount of design expertise and know how and all that kind of uh, all of those kind of things to really make it work. Uh, like you know, you can't just up and make Doom, uh, <laughs> uh, and like in a way that like it plays well and it's fun. It, I'm not saying it's any easier in that sense, but it is easier to get the framework in because, you know, there are less overall mechanics. Um, and there, there are less, like, there's less a patchwork of overlapping things that all have to fit together. There is not really, there doesn't have to be a huge story component and all those kind of things, right? Uh, so I, I kind of started out the development of Quarter K as a, as a much more arcade-like title uh, with virtually no story elements, really only focusing on, on like, FPS gameplay. And in addition to that, I wanted to also try to release it on mobile devices, which is something that surprises a lot of people. Uh, and in particular, people say, like, well, why on earth would you ever want to do that? 
Uh, and the, the, the reaction people had to that was kind of the reason I wanted to do that in the first place. Uh, because I felt like there was that like really large uh, gap in that market. Like you look at, you think of mobile games and nothing stands out as ever evoking that sort of old school, those kind of old school design sensibilities. Uh, but in my mind, I felt like there wasn't really any reason that wouldn't be the case. Uh, so there was some, some I, I tried to pave some new ground there. Um, so that was kind of my original design spec for Quarter K. It was way more of a, a classic retro shooter that was also releasing on mobile, which is extremely different from what you know what you see today. Um, because really, like I actually, I, I never had any consoles growing up. I, I was purely, uh, uh, I only had PCs, and I was kind of defined by DOS and early PC games in terms of like what I was experienced. Uh, with however what i did have um and this is the most hipster thing i will say all week <laughs> uh i did have a number of pdas like pocket pc windows mobile devices which almost never like i never really hear about these days uh but you know they were essentially like the predecessors of smartphones like they weren't really phones um because there weren't really any cellular capabilities but really just like little handheld computers uh for those who might be like unfamiliar like, i know i'm I know a lot of people like know what PDAs are, but a lot of people also don't uh, because, you know, they weren't really familiar with that or they might be younger and like, you know, they stopped being a thing altogether. Uh, but I had a bunch of those and um, there was actually a games scene for PDAs, uh, which is weird <laughs> when you think about it because they were mainly manufactured as like business devices. Um, but there were a lot of really good games for like these tiny little handheld devices. They were really, in all regards, basically phones. Uh, there was literally even like a full Age of Empires 1 port and it worked fantastically. Um, so that was sort of where I started realizing that, okay, uh, you can probably make more of a, a like an in-depth old school game on today's mobile devices and actually have it be good. And the only reason that it doesn't really exist is that there are these preconceptions about what mobile games are supposed to be and whatnot. So, so I had that sort of feeling of, okay, I, I, I should try to do that and it'll probably be pretty, pretty decent. Uh, and, and, that's still kind of a hard thing to visualize and conceptualize. And I think where I really felt like, okay, this could probably work is when I realized that uh, if you look at the original Doom and its control scheme, that actually corresponds pretty well to like a, a touch joystick, like a virtual joystick, because there is no vertical aim. Uh, so you could actually move and look at the same time, which is, you know, usual like controls is the reason that you don't see a lot of those kind of games on those kind of platforms. Um, so... So that worked fairly early on, and so I felt okay. I can actually, I can actually make this like a, a mobile classic FPS that people might actually realize that oh, this is actually I didn't know I wanted this, but it actually kind of works. Um, and again, this is kind of weird because this is so different from what Core K is trying to be today. Uh, and I think <laughs> it's hard to pinpoint exactly where that changed, but I feel like over time. Uh, as development progressed and as it actually kind of got to a, a good place. And I never really felt like there was any massive roadblocks. Uh, I, and things didn't take quite as long as I thought they would. I was sort of gradually uh, realizing that, uh, well, one, I'm not really in a hurry. And two, I can actually make a game that is more that that is closer to like what my vision of like my dream game would kind of be than I thought I could um, for 
those who don't know, in other words, those who don't haven't heard me talk about it basically every day, uh, the original Deus Ex is by far my favorite game of all time. Um, it's uh, <laughs> it's really like like as a game developer, I, I you know it's not too uncommon that you have people ask like, oh, what's your favorite game? Uh, and you would think that it would be like, oh, well, it's really hard to say. There are so many. It kind of depends. No, no, the original Deus Ex, <laughs> hands down. Uh, and that's been the case. Like, I think I've played that game for more hours than any other game I've ever played. Um, I make a point of trying to play Deus Ex one, uh, like at least once a year mm-hmm. since almost since it came out. Uh, so I really like. I have a really strong connection to the original Deus Ex. Uh, and there are so so many things that I, I really love about it, and you know I could turn this entire entire talk into just like a design, uh, like introspection of, of Day Six. Uh, but that's kind of like if I look at what I've actually wanted to make, like I've always wanted to make something that's uh, sort of a, a celebration of those design sensibilities and the experience that, that the original Day Six evokes, uh, and that's sort of where like. For each year I was working on, on Core Decay, I was sort of realizing that uh, I can actually make that into that. Like, I, it actually started to be something that, like, I thought that I was way more limited by, by scope, but it sort of started to feel like, given some more time, uh, I can actually turn this, I can take this and move it away from that sort of more like arcadey experience to something that, that more resembles an immersive sim. Uh, and obviously, it was when um, uh, 3D Realms got involved that it was like the, the, the largest affirmation of that. That's the, okay, that can really happen, and you can really take it into that that full. Like you can make it into a full immersive sim, and not just uh, like some weaker elements of that. Which is also when well, it was actually some time before that. But along with that, I also ended up deciding to uh, essentially cut the entire. At least in any kind of comprehensible future, um, the entire aspect of releasing it on mobile devices because that that was sort of my uh, there was something that I wanted to do because it hadn't been done. But as it got closer to something that resembled like more of my like artistic creative vision, there wasn't really a need for that anymore. Uh, and once once it was clear that I could make this game into more of a fully fledged immersive sim, that was way more of a design obstacle than anything. Uh, so for anyone who might like with a slight sense of worry feel like oh will will this be impacted by like mobile design considerations no the, the game is not planned to release on mobile that that's no longer an aspect of of the game maybe one day in the future sure but not not for the original like for the initial development cycle at least uh, because at this point what the game is trying to be is, is very different. Uh, so in a sense, the entire sort of history of the development of, of Core Decay, it's sort of what you see a lot in indie development in reverse. Because I know that, uh, you know, you often see things like indie devs, especially indie devs who might not have, uh, like, studio experience or professional experience. They go way up in scope and they say, oh, I'm going to make an MMO, you know, or, oh, I'm going to make a, a an open world huge RPG or something. Uh, but then, obviously, you find out that, well, okay, that's kind of impossible, <laughs> especially, you know, if you're only one person or if you only have a limited amount of resources. Um, so you have to step way down and make something like that's a lot more uh, sort of down to earth. Kodike was kind of the opposite. 
uh, I started out thinking that, okay, I'm going to make something really, really small, uh, like very self-contained, just to get something out there. And then from there, it kind of grew into, oh, maybe I can actually make something that's, that more closely resembles uh, like, yeah, like my, sort of my, my dream game or the kind of dream game that I really want to make that really speaks to me artistically. And that's a lot more, that's a lot larger in scope. Um, so I, I guess, I guess you can say it's feature creep the game, but, <laughs> but I'm happy to say that, uh, that this scope at this point is actually very, very, uh, strongly defined and, and sort of locked down, which is, which is nice because that's otherwise a, a common challenge and obstacle, I feel when it comes to game development, uh, you know, you just keep having these, these things creeping in of like, Oh, we should add this and we should add that. But, but at this point, and I, I think, I guess I kind of want to touch upon that actually, uh, a little bit in terms of what the, what Corey K is trying to be. Um, because it was actually a shock for me, uh, as well, when uh, the first kind of publicity that Cordicay got was uh, when PC Gamer picked it up and they, they did an article on it, uh, which to me, I mean, even though like, I've been a, a game developer, like actually in the industry for a while, that still was kind of surreal because then we had like the game. And at that point it was, uh, I'm trying to recall the time frame. I think there was uh, one more guy at the project at that point, which was Search. Uh, but I, I think if I recall the time frame correctly, uh, but for the most part, it had been a solo project, uh, and suddenly PC Gamer was writing about it, and there was still like there was a certain surreal feel to that in in a sense because there was still like my my personal creation. They were starting writing about it, like wow. Um, but anyway, so so that was cool. However, <laughs> uh, the PC Gamer article, uh, their interpretation that like, they essentially described the game uh, as this the spiritual successor to Deus Ex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was reading that, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> it's like I would love to do that, <laughs> but I don't know if that's exactly what it is, uh, because that's like a really tall order. <laughs> like that's almost in, like you, you can't. Um, like I have always envisioned this game as something that is far, far smaller in scope, uh, and that's like it's nice that they interpret it like that, and that that's something because I mean, yeah, sure." on like a more abstract level, that's what it's trying to be. But if people go in, like once Core Decay comes out and people pick it up and they start playing it, if if they expect it to be like, like literally a spiritual successor to Deus Ex, they might be a little bit disappointed because, you know, it's not, it's not trying to literally be Deus Ex, right? Uh, it still has more, I think more than one person has sort of described it as Quake meets Deus Ex. Which is, I think, a little bit more. Which is, I guess, essentially system shock. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but it's interesting. Like, for instance, like the game will not really have things like city hubs, right? With uh, like, you know, tons of people you can walk around and interact with and have like long branching dialogues with, um, uh, like those kind of things, or like really large scale cinematic cutscenes and, and those kind of things. Like they are not really within the scope of the game, right? It's still a scale down, uh, more, uh, sort of a, a smaller scale idea of what an immersive sim can be. Um, so, so that PC gamer article was both a boon and a sort of a, uh, like sort of the start of expectations that might be way too high as well. Uh, because again, there's like, uh, 
people get really, really excited when they hear this game is attempting to be the next Deus Ex, right? Like that's, and they conjure all these images in their head of like, oh, like this is going to be, you know, something that's absolutely amazing. And of course you want it to be something that's absolutely amazing. uh, But at the same time, uh, you, you go in with a lot of preconceived expectations. It's once once you start comparing it to like the real classics and the real like legendary games, uh, you got to be careful with that, right? Because it's still trying to be its own thing. Now, in regards to that comparison, like I, I never really I, I did read that article, but I never envisioned this game being like Deus Ex in that way. I, and it really comes down to I knew you were a, at the time at least I knew you were a solo developer, and I'm like that's right. not achievable. I mean, exactly exactly not impossible i always no, I mean, more like shock too you know like that yeah yeah exactly a little cleaner a little simpler but in my opinion yep. i love system shock too i think it's one of the greatest games ever made but it's you know it stays in its wheelhouse it doesn't try to do anything right completely crazily fancy because when you start doing that kind of shit especially as a small team or whatever with deus ex style gameplay where you have all these cutscenes and just uh there's too many things that can go wrong and you're, you're rolling right. into slob jank territory. Very. <laughs> no, exactly. It's really, um, yeah, it's, it's literally impossible. Like, you know, you, you can't make a game that follows that particular template as a solo project, unless you have 20 years of time. And, you know, and I mean, even Deus Ex itself was absolutely uh, fraught with development, uh, Obstacles, right? Uh, like my, my favorite anecdote from from the development of the original Deus Ex was um, when they had two teams. Like they had decided to separate the, the development studio into two teams, kind of both working towards the same thing because they felt like they, they would cause some like a sense of healthy competition. I believe like there was that was sort of the idea. Uh, however, they had to call these two internal teams Team One and Team A because neither team would really be happy with being Team Two, mm-hmm. which is hilarious to me. <laughs> but it's just like one of those like things that are indicative of like even even the actual Deus Ex was like had a lot of obstacles in, in its development and and if you're just a single person trying to make something similar yeah it's 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 not achievable. Yeah. Um, and at the time that was like a big company with a lot of funding and a lot of hands on deck. Um, yeah, exactly. We all know what happened ultimately. Uh, <laughs> I understand. Yeah, that. yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, and. Uh, I think it was just like too many chefs, right? I mean, that that was just like everyone on that studio was like a lead something from somewhere else, and it just yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, System Shock is actually, in terms of the actual gameplay, System Shock and System Shock, Shock Two in particular, uh, is a much closer comparison. I think the reason that Deus Ex is a more commonly brought up comparison, and the reason that I personally am also more inclined to bring up Deus Ex more commonly as a comparison, is that. Uh, like the actual uh, themes of the game and the tone of the game is more akin to Deus Ex. Um, like if you look at the game's storyline um, and like the various things that, that the game explores, uh, narratively speaking, uh, it's very evocative of Deus Ex. In terms of the setting, it's also very evocative. Like you have that near future, um, sort of slightly cyberpunk-esque or slightly dystopian, slightly sort of conspiracy-ridden um like that overall setting uh, is very much also what Core Decay is doing. So I think that's also where a lot more of the Deus Ex comparisons come from. Because you look at System Shock, it's very much it's more like high sci-fi. Um, I, I know it's still 
trying to be more grounded, but you I mean you're literally on a space station. Like you can only <laughs> you can only get so grounded. It's kind of the same thing um, with like you know Star Trek, right? Like even though it is this extremely extravagant story that's being told, it really is just right. the, the camera is them on a ship and right, it, it right settles it down. Are you familiar with the the smart method? Or this, it's uh, a model. It's like a thought model. So, it's for setting I know. goals. Have to do. Sorry, it's it's for what? It's for setting goals, right? So okay, I I talk to you know lots of very creative people all the time, and you strike me as like one of these people that uh, you have all these amazing mm-hmm. ideas, and it, it's just bursting out of you so quickly that you're like <laughs> I, like overwhelmed by it, and it's important to have that kind of person. But are, you're working with um, Scarecrow now on this game. Uh, yep. Okay. So he's like the perfect counterpart, you know, because he's just a <laughs> brainiac kind of person. But so the smart model is just a way of setting your goals. So it's that they should be specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-based. And that keeps everything in perspective. So when you start yep. a game, you know, <laughs> two, two and a half years later, your idea of what that game is is totally different. So now you've already derailed from the plan. But if right. you have set this in motion ahead of time, like it needs to be specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-based, and you don't deviate from that plan, you will then more likely accomplish the goal, right? Right, yeah. I, that's, I really feel like, I mean, in any kind of project, but the game development in particular, it's it's such a an easy pitfall, right? Like, yeah. it, and not just feature creep, but but just in general, having a sense of the overall direction too. Um, you know, as you say, like you start out, and again, like Quarter K is emblematic of that because it started out as one thing and it gradually changed into something that's very different. And I have really, like, it's been very, very important for me that like at every step along that way to step back and to try to think like, okay, where are we actually going you know, making sure it's not spinning out of control or, or anything like that. And I am happy to say that at this point, um, you know, obviously not going into like fine details of like the actual development process here, because that's not particularly interesting. Um, but I am happy to say that the entirety of the game, uh, which includes, you know, mechanics, content, this storyline, whatnot, is entirely s- scoped out, right? Um, which sounds obvious but like the amount of indie projects that i have ran into you know when there are people who make a game and you ask okay so what should what's the final game going to look like and they're like ah we'll see when we get there (laughs) um you know so it's been really important for me to always have that sense of like uh making sure that things are as you say like to to have everything like everything you do be a, a I'm, now I'm trying to recall your acronym. <laughs> I, well, I know it's not your. I know it's not your acronym. No. Uh, but 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 you know to have things obtainable and measurable, uh, it, it's it's so important. I, I agree 100. Um, percent Which is also why also like if you look at the uh, there is a video. It hasn't been super heavily promoted. Um, so uh, like it's not like the trailer which was spread all, all over social media that that we did before around Steep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is like a five minute gameplay video on youtube of the game that's literally just like exploring a level for a few minutes with no commentary um and you can actually note a lot of those prioritizations when if you look at that gameplay video uh in terms of like uh see if i can think of a good example um 
like the way that the entire game is structured, it, it, it's with a very, very small scope in mind, right? Like within that entire piece of gameplay footage, um, the things that you do and the way that like the narrative unfolds, it's it all fits into sort of the same template as a means to keep the scope down, right? Like, and that's also what's what's really nice. I actually realized as I was starting to look at again, I started to look at games like Deus Ex, and I start to think, okay, okay, I have kind of decided for myself that I want to develop a game that is uh, not a not as some would put it a spiritual successor, but a game that's inspired by everything that I love about Deus Ex, right? Yeah. And you start to think, okay, so what aspects of that particular game, uh, like, like you don't want to just say, Deus Ex did this, so I'm going to do this, right? You want to say, okay, these are things that games like Deus Ex did. Why did they do them and what were they trying to achieve? Am I trying to achieve the same things? And might that then also be a good way of doing it, right? Like, that's the way you have to think. Um and an example of that is putting a lot of narrative in uh, computer terminals and log entries and, and and things like that, right? Like because that's something that's a staple of a lot of immersive sims, uh, but but Deus Ex in particular. Um, and again, it, it would be easy to say, oh, like a game like Core Decay has a lot of computer terminals because a game like Deus Ex has a lot of computer terminals, but that's not really getting to the why, right? Uh, and I quickly understood and kind of found that by moving a lot of the actual world building and narrative and and like storytelling uh to like that loop of exploring uh like exploring the game levels and finding left behind logs and emails and computers and 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 those kind of like subjective first person uh like little tidbits of of narrative uh, that also allows you to have this really rich and complex world that you present in a lot of detail, like in a really small scope, right? You don't have to spend tens of thousands of dollars on voice actors. You don't have to do hundreds of cutscenes and and you know motion cap this and animated that and and tons of unique art assets for you know all of these different. Like you can you can fit a ton of storytelling into the game solely in that one mechanic, right? Uh, which is a good example of like how um, how this game is also designed with that in mind. Like a lot of these things you see, they're not just there because it was done in earlier classic immersive sims, but it's more like they did it and they did it for a specific reason. And that reason is also a part of what's trying to be achieved here, you know? So, and, and that might seem like a subtle distinction, but I think it's a really important one. I mean... It- in terms of all the crazy shit you can do with a game, when you start throwing in cutscenes and you know voice actors and everything that goes into it, let, let's like actually take a moment and go back and look at you know Duke, Nukem 3D, Deus Ex right. is another good example. Like, doesn't matter how great your voice, you could literally have the best voice actor of all time, which Duke 3D arguably did. We don't <laughs> enjoy those cutscenes because they're good. We enjoy them because they're hilariously bad, right? And, and <laughs> I mean, yeah. I again, I love Deus Ex One to bits. Really, like I've spent literally thousands of hours in that game. The voice acting in many areas is horrendous. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and the scenes are all janky and shit breaks. And I mean, like it doesn't matter how much funding you have. It, 
it's a nearly i'm not going to say completely because i mean there are examples like maybe uncharted it's nearly impossible to have a game function at that scale without any bullshit happening that's just like right. makes it like either either broken or hilariously bad yeah so. i mean my i guess what the main thing i would bring up would be witcher 3 which you know like one of the big reasons that it saw such acclaim was that it was so huge in scope and production mm-hmm. values that still managed to be to feel completely true to it, like it's full vision, right? Um, so that would be like the one example that that I can but think it, of. It launched like um, shit that, that really did achieve that. It ate eight months. That's CPU true. Alive and, uh. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, of course it was yeah. obviously not perfect. But if you look at the state of the game today, it's like, yeah, that's a pretty good example of like all the pieces truly coming together in a way that's really admirable. Um, Witcher but, but, yeah. 3, after it had been worked on for another two years of, since its release, is easily one of my like five top five games of all time. Like I love the whole Witcher series, right. top to bottom. But I'm just, absolutely, yeah, you can't ignore the fact that like it it totally launched like crap. Like people are all like yeah. cyberpunk. Oh god! Like I'm like yeah, but like Witcher know. 3 <laughs> was the same way when it came out. Like, it, it's you don't buy know, a game when I it know. first comes out anymore. It's just not a triple A game anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, and part of that's honestly like uh, in my mind, part of it also has to do with market expectations in a way that like this, like every every year and like every generation, every like as new games come out, we kind of just expect them to be uh, like to have like ten times the fidelity of the previous games, yeah, uh, yet more cost long. the same amount of money and be developed by the same amount of people and be like a hundred times greater in scope. Something's gotta give, right? Uh, and I'm not saying that, like, you know, consumers are to blame for the state of, of games, you know, game releases. Of course not. Of course not. But it's a more nuanced picture than just, you know, developers are lazy or greedy and they're just going to throw them out. You know, like, it's not that simple, right? I mean, an in most cases, to be made it's capital, capitalism's fault. It's John Locke's fault. Uh, but, I mean, obviously, everybody, you know, you, you got to feed yourself and everything, but... Yeah, as you said, they expect right. to spend the same amount of money, the same amount of people, but have a better product every single year. And right. It's just – this is why I prefer talking to folks that are working on projects that are literally like their passion projects because it <laughs> it's not – you're not – maybe you're doing it for some money, but it's – you didn't set – you already have well, a job, right? Like You didn't set and up to do 40K because I, you I, wanted to of... make a million bucks, right? Right. No, exactly. I mean, if anything, uh, back when mobile was still a consideration, mm-hmm. like an active like goal of the project, um, that was also a conversation that I had with uh, like a number of industry veterans that I know through like through, through my work. Um, like, you know, these are people who have worked in the game industry for, you know, 40 years, you know, like, you know, like real, they know what they're doing, right? But they were telling me also, and I was talking about to them, um, I was talking about monetization models, right? And I was like, well, so I'm making this game and I'm planning to have a mobile version and I want to like sell it for 10 bucks, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I really, that's the only viable way to have a game like this to me in a way that like, that makes the actual like concrete experience for the player what I want it to be, you know? Um, and the response from all of these people, well, no, you're not going to make any money <laughs> because no one's going to spend $10 on the, on, the, on the game on the mobile platform because that's just not the market expectations, right? Uh, but that was again where you know I was like, okay, I'm fine with that. <laughs> like, okay, maybe it's not going to make any money, but that's all right. 
because again, it's a passion. Like at that time in particular, it was a passion project. It was like a making money off it was not the point. Um, now, of course, at this point, that's different because as soon as you loop in an actual studio with people who are you know working on this to make a living, well, of course you needed to make money, you know, because because I mean that's just common sense, you know. Like, once we have, I mean, now there are. Uh, like now that Three uh, D Realms and, and Slipgate are on board, I mean, the, now we're talking about like I'm not the only one working on this game. There are people working on this game who need to make a living, so the game obviously needs to do financially like reasonably well to have that be viable. So of course that's that's different, but it's always a balance. And I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but what really gets to me most of the time is when. Uh, people complain about uh, like when they really always default back to the concept of greed, you know, they're like, you know, these developers are greedy. They do this because they're greedy. And yeah, that does happen. But honestly, nine times out of 10, at least to my, like, as far as, as, as I can see it, really, you're just trying to make ends meet, you know, like it, it comes down to that even for, like even for like if you go in like an extreme and you look at like free to play games right uh with these like terrible monetization models that are legitimately like terrible in the sense that um they interfere with the enjoyment of the rest of the gameplay mechanics right uh but you're looking at that and you think okay so the devs put in all of these ways that you can spend money in the game because they're greedy i mean i'm not saying it's not detrimental but I don't think greed has anything to do with it for the most part. What you're looking at is like, oh, I'm running a studio of 20 people. They're all trying to put food on the table. You know, they need to, they need to get paid somehow. And this is the lowest risk way for that to happen. Right. And that doesn't mean it's not a, like, it's not a good thing, but it's a problem that's erosion through, um, like this, these feedback loops of market interaction, right? Like we have, um, we have people now who are fully on board with spending thousands of dollars in microtransactions, uh, you know, in a way that like leads to game design that's just not very enjoyable anymore. Um, but the problem there isn't that the devs are greedy and want thousands of dollars. The problem is that, uh, you know, you're trying to keep a studio afloat. And when you look at like what's the most what's the safest way I can do this, that's the least likely for me to have to let go of you know ten people. Um, yeah, that's gonna be through certain monetization models that's proven to be less risky, and it sucks that it is that way. But it doesn't come down to greed for the most part. Um, I, and and I that's something that I, I see time and time again to be made between. Okay, I don't think artists who I, and I would conver- consider most of your developers like artists. Whether that be, I mean, a code coder, you know, an actual programmer can be an artist in a way, or a literal artist, or a voice actor, or a you know whatever it happens to be. Map designers, their most artists are never acting out of greed, right? Like they're acting out of they need to create. Right. That's their greed is that I want to create something. It's when you need money to accomplish that goal, and then the person who's investing in that goal. Right. can be a really good person, you know, That's who wants to take care of everybody on the team and all that. Right. Or it could be a big group of people who could give a shit about your game but just want to make money and they see it as a, an investment. So then they will start compromising what you want to do to help them get what they want out of it. 
and that's when it becomes a problem, right? So I, yeah, you kept saying course, the word yeah. developers. Like I don't think of any developer. That, I've never met a green right. developer, to be honest with you. I've all, <laughs> but I've met a lot of green well, sure. Car salesmen. I, I, I mean, I, I guess I guess what I'm sort of trying to get to is like even if you look at like publishers, or, or, like obviously, like yes, there is legitimate greed in the industry. Of course, there is. But even when you look at people who aren't like like personal developing the game, I still feel like it's often a case of like just wanting to not have to shut down your studio, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think like the, at the end of the day, my point is that things are just a little bit more nuanced than they're often made out to be. You know, yeah, <laughs> nothing's black and white except uh, for me on camera. That's it. <laughs> now, in mean, all that being said, I, I, I should probably just make sure to to say this straight out like even though i just spent the last 10 minutes saying well things like microtransactions in games they might be detrimental to game design but i can understand why they choose to be put in and whatnot uh quarter k nothing like that (laughs) there are not going to be any kind of uh monetization models put into uh quarter k that's not you pay money for the game, you get the game, period. I, just I would, just to make sure that that's obvious. <laughs> I would way rather just pay you a, a bunch of money. That, I'd rather yeah. pay yeah. you like regularly, like every time you just keep keep the content coming and make yeah. it good well, and give you that one time, like here's the money and, and I want to support you. Uh, I would ever want to like have to buy so, a feature of the game. You know what I mean? Right. And, and yeah. like you have to understand her that like I literally work on free-to-play monetization for a living. <laughs> Like, well, I mean, not solely. I'm, I mean, I do a lot of things. But I have, you know, at this point, a number of years of experience. And so I've seen, uh, like, I, I do have, like, a personal perspective of exactly all the reasons that this can be terrible. Because it usually is pretty terrible. Um, so that's, again, that's a big reason why Core Decay exists. Like, you know, like, I, again, I, nothing ill said of, like, the work that I do at, like, my day job because... Again, this is an MMO, so it's a live service game, so you kind of have to have that, otherwise it just wouldn't be viable. And, you know, it's a lot of fun to work on this, and again, the people I work with are great, and I really, really enjoy it. Um, but I kind of feel like, in addition to that, like, I also want to pour my some of my creative energy into something that, you know, that isn't that. Um, and yeah, like, when it comes down to things like microtransactions, uh, it's just one of those things where... I, I feel like people are upset about them often for the wrong reasons. Like the, the core issue with all of that, it isn't things like pay to win, even though that's kind of a problem. The issue is that like designing a game around active monetization like that is directly counterproductive to designing gameplay mechanics that are immersive and interesting. Uh, you know, it's it's not about spending money to be better. It's about putting these things in the game that makes for a less immersive and less self-contained experience. Uh, right. You know, and we have, there is always going to be people to say like, oh, I hate this free to play game because it has all of these paywalls. And I say, no, no, there should be more paywalls. Like that's a, that's a much better way of doing things. Like pay a sum of money to access an entire chunk of the game. That's fine. Pay a tiny bit of money to just become a little better at something or, you know, like that's, that's what leads to. Or even uh, cosmetics, no. right? Like that, even that. Ah, breaks it. I, I, I really, yeah, I hate, man, I, that's, it bothers me so much. Like, uh, like, we have this dichotomy now of cosmetic and non-cosmetic. And people say, oh, I'm fine with, with in-game purchases if it's just cosmetics. And, like, 
to it me, it's like on your goal, right? Okay, it on the type of game. Yeah, like, it, you know, of course it does. You know, look yeah. at like Overwatch. Totally like, fine. Nothing wrong with player it. Player game. All people care about is whether or not it breaks their ability to compete. So if you can buy a better weapon than the other guy or an ability the other guy doesn't have, that's bullshit. But if it's cosmetic, I can right. like, ah, that doesn't bother me. The same thing with Quake Champions. Like I, as much as I don't care right. about cosmetics, I'm fine with the developers making their money as long as it doesn't break my ability. Absolutely to reasonable. Yeah. yeah. But you look at something like an RPG. And you look at something like, you know, okay, now you can spend real money to get like a really cool looking piece of armor, right? The problem is that in an RPG, like your character progression and the way your character looks, they're kind of innately tied together. You know, like you, you break you break the immersion of the game world. Uh, the way I usually look at it is essentially this. If a game has any kind of store that offers you to pay real money to get something, right? Okay. Now imagine that instead of that being a store with real money, it was literally just a button you press and you get all of that for free, right? Like you literally just click a button and everything that's in any kind of in-game store, it's just given to you right away. You just get it, period. Would the game now be boring or not fun? If the answer is yes, then it's a problem, right? Because again, you look at something like an RPG and you look at something like, oh, you're selling all these cosmetic items and you're selling all of these, like maybe you're even selling things like health potions or something if it's like, you know, for real money. Uh, okay, so if you got all of that for free, now the game would not be even remotely interesting because A, it wouldn't be challenging, and B, you have all of these, like, like the way that your character looks and presents itself is no longer tied to accomplishments you have made within the game. It just makes everything meaningless. You know, so that's the greater issue. The greater issue is that all of these monetization models, they lead to a loss of immersion um, and again, they create this dichotomy in terms of the cosmetic stuff, like where the way you look and the way you behave is completely disconnected. And yes, that works well in some games, but in other games, it completely breaks things. You know, like you don't necessarily want that because it just robs you of all the immersion of getting there, which is again why I'm actually, I like that the industry has moved a little bit more towards things like um, uh, like the battle pass, season pass kind of systems. They're still not great, but they're a lot better because the idea is, you know, you, you give suspense some money, but in order to, for it to actually mean anything, you still have to play the game. You know, yeah. it, it, it's not, it's still not great, but it's a lot better than what we have seen in the past of just, you know, oh, give me $20 and you're going to get all of this stuff to make the game maybe easier and therefore not as engaging. It's not... <laughs> Yeah, I can see why, yeah. like, a, a live online game, right, that you play all the time, that the developers will never actually be done developing until right. it's gone, you know, if they decide to shut it down. That's It's the problem. It's sort of like a, what what is it called? The, the snake that circles the world. Right. It bites his own tail because you're essentially in this position where you'll, you've started a game that you will never be done developing, and you're going to have to constantly keep updating it and keep engaging right. people over and over and over again as opposed to you know a single player game where it's you can still replay it i guess but it's just like here's a self-contained experience so when you're in a self-contained experience yeah that's the way to put it so when you're when you're in a situation where you're making a game I, i'm just going to use quake champions because it's one of my faves mm-hmm. but 
I can understand why the season pass thing works for them because it get, you know it allows people to continue to fund them as they continue to go. If you just said, okay, here's sixty bucks, and I'm never going to give you money again, yeah, they're gonna they're inevitably going to run out of money at some point. So, yeah, yeah it's Whereas it's interesting. Game, like you just have to make your budget, <laughs> right? Exactly. Like that's that's why I want so much to make this like single player, completely self contained. Mm. You buy it once. That's the game. I'm. I'm not saying it's never going to be updated. Um, no, that's an entirely different rabbit <laughs> hole right there. <laughs> of, of you know, I've seen Steam reviews of like single player games that are like you know finished games. They work great, and they're like thumbs down. Great game, but it's a shame the developer abandoned it. What does that even mean? This is like it's how become this the mentality now. That like, how old am I? Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna be 28 uh, this month. So we're we're like right in the same. I'm 25. So we're in the same kind of right. development cycle of how our brains work. But you know, kids that are 16, 17, like they have a totally different expectation. Right. And I'm not saying all of them. There's plenty of mm-hmm. really smart kids out there, but right, they're they've been conditioned to this idea that like my game never ends. You know, and I'm like, no, it's it's. Okay. I know, it's, I know, and go, you know, it's okay to pay to money to go at, see you know, a movie. Right, like, and then you see the movie, and then it's over, right? Yeah, and and it, I mean, it's true that if you look at live service games, you look at like MMOs, you look at a lot of multiplayer shooters. By definition, they kind of want to go on for as long as possible because you need other players to play them, right? Uh, and even though you could release like Quake Three Arena back in the day, and it you know, or Unreal Tournament, or the original Counter Strike, you know, whatnot, and they stayed. You know, they had huge player bases for a very long time. You would think that that would still be the case. The problem is that the market is so saturated, right? Like, new games come out all the time. There's other problems, too. Um, like, <laughs> if you can't set up your own, because like, what kept Quake and Doom alive for mm. all these years was like dedicated players could just have their own dedicated servers and yeah. pop them up anytime. Yeah. Uh, the development was not on the developers anymore. Like, they're just like, okay, do whatever you want. No, of course. And then, and then the yeah, exactly. You know, I, I never played a ton of Quake, uh, like multiplayer in any of sort of multiplayer incarnations. I did play a bunch of Unreal tournaments. I actually, I, I don't know if it's an unpopular opinion, but I actually really like 2004. That was kind of probably that's one of my favorites. It's uh, not you know, unco- it's not a uncom- It's not like mechanically. I don't think it's as good as say the original 99. But the sheer amount of variety that it offered really, like I found, I found that really appealing because there was just so much you could do. So many game modes, so many maps, you know. Uh, and I remember, like, I haven't played it now in, in years, to be to be honest. But I would spend so much time, literally, just like I think my like my folder on my hard drive for like Unreal Tournament, it was like fifty gigabytes or something like that because of the, like the mods that and content and maps and whatnot. You could, as you say, like the community just kind of creates its own content over and over and over. And I kind of feel like when you look at live service games, so MMOs aside, because MMOs are kind of inherently just different. Uh, but if you look at something like, uh, I don't know, say Call of Duty or Battlefield Five or, you know, whatnot, um, I feel it's really just like large developers that are trying to adapt to this idea of like, okay, we're not going to keep players engaged for that long um, because they're just going to be like, there's so much saturation, they're going to play other things. So we're going to try to make the game have new things over and over and over for as long as possible uh, to make as much money as possible. And again, it doesn't necessarily come out of greed. It comes out of, okay, we're get, because then we're going to invest that money into the next, you know, the next project. 
I'm not saying Activision and whatnot aren't necessarily greedy. That I'm not going to comment on that. But, <laughs> um, but the point being that, I, I you know these people aren't stupid, right? They're they're. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> but they're like everything, right? That you see about AAA games and these kinds. Of, it's all calculated risk, right? Like, like that's honestly like what it comes down to at the end of the day. Uh, you know, like these games are designed the way they do because it's considered financially the uh, what has the highest probability to yield a profit in the sense that you know these companies can continue to exist and continue to make games. It's very uh, simple, man. Like I think you're you're nuking, you're like you're going way too far with it. It it's it's like is your goal to make a really good game and charge people a fair price, or is your goal to make a game that makes you a lot of money and that you can make a lot of money the ethical way, but if you go the other route, it doesn't necessarily result in a really good immersion. Right, and, and that's why it's so amazing that we have all of these indie games and smaller developers, and you know, um, at the same time, uh, you know, I don't want to you know get too far in that other direction, but um, once you reach, at least this is my, I mean, this is all my personal opinion. You know, obviously, yeah. you can't take that for fact, but I feel that once you reach a certain like level of production values that becomes less of like a a viable thing to say just because there is just too much money involved that simply saying you know we're going to make a good game and that's all we're going to care about once you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that becomes a lot harder to to look at in a vacuum like that because if you do fail that's a lot of a lot of money right it- um, and I, again, I'm not defending huge publishers, but but I'm trying to like reason around like how it's being thought of. And honestly, it's kind of apples and oranges because you have amazing indie games. You have thousands and thousands of amazing indie games. You, but then you also have like some of these AAA games, they're, they're enjoyable specifically because they have these high production values. Like that's its own interesting thing. It's yeah. not the same. Like, you can't compare it directly, right? Uh, but you look, you know, even look at something like Call of Duty campaigns, right? Say what you want about Call of Duty campaigns, but they can be enjoyable the same way, say, a Michael Bay Hollywood is enjoyable, right? And yeah. yeah, that can be fun. And you can't do that necessarily without those huge budgets because that's just part of what makes it what it is. So yeah, there really are kind of apples and oranges. They're, they're, they're just trying different things. And I honestly think both should exist, uh, even though obviously the industry needs to take a, a step back and evaluate you know, working conditions, they need to evaluate uh, the value proposition to like, of like the products they put out to like the consumers and whatnot. Um, anyway, way off on a tangent here. <laughs> Sorry. This way. Like if you're, if you're working for 3d realms, right? Your boss who I know deeply cares about t- making great games, you know, and making money is like part of it, but it's not his entire fucking goal. His goal. I know Fred is passionate about making fantasy oh, yeah. games. If you worked for to Activision, who fucking knows? You know, like who has any? No, idea of course, of are? course. So I, I don't want to like just to like for clarification. I'm not. I'm not really defending the policies of large publishers. It's more about I'm. I'm, I'm trying to reason around why they're acting the way they are. Then you know whether that should be the case or not. Yeah, probably not. And yeah, of course you want the, the system that always promotes that sort of emphasis on creativity and passion obviously obviously um but i do think it's doing the conversation a disservice by simply defaulting to oh yeah activision are greedy 
and then not really delving into like yeah. you know how things are actually working. The only thing is, I don't know who Activision is, right? Like, I'm sure there's a guy who's the CEO, but right. then there's like millions of dollars from several different investors, all you know poking. It just it's entropy, right? It's it's this system that's become so complex that it can't be managed. It's chaos, essentially. Uh, controlled yeah. chaos, maybe, yeah. but it's it's not a smart <laughs> plan. It's not a specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, time-based plan. Well, yeah, no. And it's funny, all of this kind of stems from me emphasizing that Core Decay will not have any microtransactions. <laughs> it's okay, man. It's, it's, a, it's a conversation. Um, like, this is an opportunity yeah, yeah. for people to get to know you and how you think, right? Right. <laughs> Make a lot of enemies along the way. Yeah. And if, if they like you, they'll buy your game. And if they don't like you, then they just won't, I guess. <laughs> the goal here is to make you <laughs> Which is nuts. fine. You know, that's, uh, yeah, you know, for sure. Um, but, but yeah, b- back to, um, going back to Quarter K, um, it definitely is 100% a passion project, regardless of, you know, <laughs> anything else. Um, it really just comes down to, um, to sort of, going back to the qualities that made these early immersive sims so enjoyable um and and all of these things that just uh, like another thing that i um uh, did they often come back to as an example of of uh, like quarter kick kind of stands out from three d rounds roster of games in a lot of ways um i know that with with graven that's sort of graven to my like i'm not intimately familiar with Graven, right? Like, I'm not part of the development of, of, of Graven, so I can't speak for it, uh, you know, in, in, in any kind of great depth. But to me, Graven is sort of the in-between there. It's sort of the bridge between, um, between like, a full-blown immersive sim, which isn't really... I mean, it feels... I shouldn't, I shouldn't say it like that, because who, who defines immersive sim, really? Um, but it, it's still, like, it has a lot of, like retro fps dna in it as well right again i mean i'm talking as just as much of an outsider as anyone else on graven like i don't have any kind of uh, internal knowledge of that much um but quarter k meanwhile is is really like what i would consider to be more of a full-blown a full-blown immersive sim uh which is also like a term that's been discussed you know back and forth a lot but but the best way to illustrate that to me is the role of combat um you know, you look at Doom or Quake, you look at, you know, basically any classic shooter. Mm-hmm. Uh, combat is sort of its own reward, in a sense. Like, that is, it's it's not the means to end, it's its own, it's the its own end, right? Like it's to kill the enemies and get the key and exit the room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the point of combat in games like, you know, Doom, Quake, it's really, uh, it's kind of twofold. One is uh, the actual sort of adrenaline rush and sort of the emotional appeal of it, the, the, the audiovisual, uh, sort of almost like player, the, the player being an extension of, of like you, uh, like all of that kind of stuff, like the visceral feeling of, of being in the midst of combat as its own enjoyable experience, right? Like that's, that's part of it. And the rest of it is sort of the strategic tactical appeal of like being good at it, right? Like, uh, and <laughs> vast simplification, obviously, of the appeal of combat in an FPS, but but the point is that the game is really about the combat and it's refined that to like perfection. And, you know, simply engaging in combat is what you want to do because it's really enjoyable. Uh, compare that to the role of combat in more of a, a full-blown immersive sim such as Deus Ex or indeed Core Decay. Uh, combat is really... It's not really there for its own sake. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really just one mechanic among many to facilitate meaningful decisions. 
like as as you play a game like this it's not obvious to engage in combat right it's it's really more about um these enemies here present an obstacle i can engage in combat with them that's one thing i can do and that's at the cost of well one risk of death yeah. you know complete lost states uh spending ammo which might be in really limited quantities um or you know just losing health in general which is a valuable resource alerting more enemies <laughs> escalates you know so you have to make you have to balance that and you can say okay so maybe i want to find a different way around this entirely you know or right. maybe i want to solve this maybe i want to sneak past these enemies maybe i want to do this and that right and so the role of, of, of combat isn't really at all the same as the role of combat in a pure fps right it's like, really just about gloomwood is also kind of the, the point perspective like a more like a survival horror way of doing it if that right. makes sense yeah and and the point isn't necessarily that you can play through the entire game without ever engaging in combat. It, it, even though sex did not let you do that, um, the, with a couple very notable except, exceptions to like that presumption. Um, but the point is rather that even though you do definitely, you're expected to engage in combat quite a bit in general. When you do so, is at your own volition, and it, it's really up to you how you want to approach it. And if you want to play the game, like Quarter King in particular, it's really designed around that sort of... Um, the mentality of, of choosing the way you want to play the game, which is really sort of a pillar of any of if any immersive sim. If you want to play the game as a shooter, you can play the game as a shooter, right? Like, uh, you can upgrade yourself in ways that makes you more proficient at combat. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get rid of those like sort of early handicaps that makes combat uh, more challenging and and like less of an obvious choice. Yeah, you can work around that. You can say, I'm gonna make I'm gonna give myself more health. I'm gonna give myself the ability to uh, you know shoot while sprinting. I, I'm going to become more accurate in this and that, right? Uh, I'm gonna I'm going to have like I'm going to take my limited inventory space and I'm going to dedicate it entirely to tons of guns and tons of ammo. Right? You can do that, and then you play the game as a shooter, and you can play the game through as a shooter, and that's it. That's a perfectly viable approach. And if you want to do that, you can absolutely do that. If alternatively you want to say, well, I only really want to engage in combat when absolutely necessary, you can instead say, okay, I'm going to be a lot better at exploration. I'm going to like upgrade myself in ways that benefits finding different areas of each level, bypassing combat encounters entirely. You know, I'm going to stash my inventory full of lockpicks and, you know, medkits uh, in various, like, tools that make me um, proceed in, like, non-combat ways. That's also a completely viable approach, right? And most most people will be sort of in between. Um, but, but that, like, the role of combat is more of a um, one tool among many it's really what, like, defines, I think, the design philosophy of of, of Kordikea as opposed to a lot of retro shooters in general. And obviously, it's not a matter of which approach is best. There is no such thing. You know, they serve different purposes because they're different games. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's different. Uh, it's it definitely uh, it it it's. I think it stands out. Um, in that roster, and it also hasn't really been. I mean, now we're seeing a bit of a resurgence 
of of these kind of games that are either like what you would consider full out immersive sims or what you would consider sort of immersive sim esque or with inspirations from those kind of games. They're coming back a little bit, but uh, it's interesting. Like uh, the very first when I when I first decided to do anything even remotely resembling Cortique, my first source of inspiration was actually uh, Wolfenstein: The New Order. I had I just played that. And it was like, wow, this is actually kind of fun, you know? Like, this is actually a really nice game. Like, wow, retro games are kind of, you know... But, like, games with these old-school sensibilities are now becoming this thing, which is, like, really... It's really cool to see. So I played I played Wolfenstein in New Order. I think I also watched one of... Um, I think just at that time, Total Biscuits, when he was still alive, he had done uh, a video on, on specifically the design sensibilities of old-school shooters that I found really interesting. Uh, so I, I remember watching that and played Wolfenstein. It's like, okay, I want to do something like this. So that's kind of where that started. Uh, and that's only become more and more, like, bigger and bigger. And we have all of these, like, it's actually really carving out a space for itself now, right? Um, but we haven't seen it as much with um, with these sort of more, like, slower-paced, exploration-focused, uh, uh, you know, less arcadey kind of kind of games until now, I mean, obviously, we, we can look at, like, Arcane Studios games. We can look at Dishonored and Prey, uh, the, the new Prey game. Um, and we can look at, obviously, new Deus Ex games, which are fantastic. Uh, but they're also all kind of AAA. You know, they're their own thing. They're um, they're fantastic. I mean, I love all of those games. Uh, I've played a huge amount of these games. Uh, but they're still... They don't quite occupy the same... Uh, space as something that tries to be more uh, like directly inspired by both the aesthetics and the design philosophies of the Deus Ex One, System Shock, uh, Thief, uh, and so on. Um, so there is a space for that, and I, I'm really happy to see that even beyond Court K, this is really starting to to emerge as a sort of a revival of this entire genre. Yeah, I, it's really interesting. I think I talked to Dave Oshry about this a good bit, but mm-hmm. how we had this kind of resurgence of what you know what people are calling retro FPS, boomer shooters, whatever. And the it's amazing to me that the obvious cycle, like it's it is happening as we speak. But <laughs> it, you know, you start with your your dooms and your quakes and your unreals, and then suddenly you start to get your thieves and your Deus Exes and your right history repeats itself. Uh, yeah, it's it's <laughs> literally just happening all over again. But yeah, yeah. now it's happening with far better technology, and it's. <laughs> attainable for a solo developer to make a really cool game, right? Or for yeah, and that's when you start to get. I mean, that's another thing stuff. too. Yeah, go ahead. Like the ability for a indie dev to make something on their own today is like we've never seen anything like it. You know, uh, we look at like say the Unity engine, which incidentally is what Cortike is is built in. And I mean, Unity is not perfect; it has its share of flaws, but you can't get around that it's made it really easy for a ton of people to just, you know, throw a game together. You, you know, like, really, the, the limit... The, the obstacle of technology is, like, lower than ever before, which is great. You see so many people, even though they're not necessarily ever going to make finished games, but the fact that you can just stumble into it and just, yeah. without even thinking, just have an outlet for that, it's, it's fantastic. So that's... I think that's it's really nice to see... So I feel like we kind of wrapped that part of the conversation up. I'm curious about you as an individual, like what set you on the path to be a game developer in this day and age? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I uh, as I said before, I Who hurt you. So <laughs> to this date, um, <laughs> I I've never I never owned any game consoles, anything like that. Like that was never part of growing up. Um, I did have a lot of computers. Like that was always like. I, I always like growing up. I was a very computer oriented person, you know, like you know the quintessential computer geek, really. Um, uh, and so, games in general were always really engaging to me. I, as I said, like the original Descent was was something that I played a lot and really enjoyed. Uh, and then I started moving to games like um, I particularly recall the original Age of Empires. That was like one of the defining games of my childhood. Again, I'm. I'm just about 28 now, uh, so I was, you know, it was sort of right at the time where, uh, like, I was growing up right around the time where these kind of games were coming out. And actually, Age of Empires 1 was probably the first entry into game, into what would become the game development for me, because uh, Age of Empires 1 comes with a map editor. <laughs> uh, extremely rudimentary such, but, uh, you know, that was as a young at a young age, I think, you know, I'm pretty sure I wasn't. I wasn't a teenager at the time. I was. I was very young, and that was like the first time I realized that I could like take a game and through that have like a creative outlet for 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 something. Uh, so I spent a lot of time in like the Age of Empires One map editor. Moving on to, of course, the Age of Empires Two map editor and the Age of Mythology map editor, and, and later on the Warcraft Three map editor. So, uh, so RTS games were actually the the first outlet for what would sort of become pure game development when I was growing up. Um, I, I spent a lot of time just creating all these custom maps for for these, like the HF series and, and Warcraft 3. Um, and I quickly found like that was something I really enjoyed doing. And alongside that, I found myself all, also always really interested in programming. Um, I uh, There was this sort of an inherent appeal to that. And I didn't really care for it in relation to games more so than anything else. In particular, but those kind of things just kind of naturally converged. Like I really enjoyed sort of the uh, aesthetic and sort of almost like narrative appeal of making custom maps for RTS games, and I also really enjoyed coding. Uh, and I think like over time, it just became kind of obvious to me, like okay, well that kind of that's game development. <laughs> uh, so that's that's what I started wanting to do. Um, and if you're not familiar, Warcraft Three actually um, it's it actually its map editor has a custom programming language. Like it's it's super extensive so that also made it uh like it gave me a really sort of gradual uh introduction to everything game development so it's it sort of started from there and i think that's the case for a ton of people right like you start with what essentially is modding you know at the end of the day that's that's really what it is and it sort of moves on to making games um my first actual like something sort of resembling a game um again i used to have I used to have a bunch of uh, Pocket PC, Windows Mobile PDAs back in the day, uh, and there was a there was a Hungarian fantasy game. Like it was basically an old blobber, like a Ultima style. Um, uh, I was in touch with the developers for that, and I actually ended up making from scratch some like expansion kits for that expansion packs for those games. Super obscure. Like <laughs> I don't think <laughs> it's like the most out there, like totally not heard of kind of thing you can imagine, but. So it's like it's even hard to talk about because no one obviously no one really knows that particular. It was not it was not well known, um, but that's sort of the first like proper game product that I worked on. Um, and honestly, from there it just sort of escalated. Um, 
I'm originally from Sweden. Uh, I I moved to the U.S. about uh, almost six years ago now, uh, but but I've, otherwise I've I've lived in Sweden all my life. Um, and there are a lot of good uh, like universities and institutions there for game development. Like it was pretty easy for me to um, to get into that right away. Like out of high school, um, I I sort of started a uh, like in total that would it would be five years of like academic um, like pursuits related to game development. Right. It's um, I'm, it's obvious like when it comes to like educational systems, it's kind of hard to translate from one country to another, you know, but, but in general, I, I basically studied game development in particular the last two years, like more specifically uh, game art mostly, but I really kind of tried to get a broad sort of sense of, of, of all aspects of that and straight out of, out of school then a lot of university um i basically got employed pretty much right away um here in the states um and i'm currently working uh so i'm currently working under damon sly i don't know if you know him or not he uh he is he is an old industry veteran uh, uh like like really um he was behind games like red baron uh, or Mech Warrior or Earth Siege. Uh, it, it, sorry, um, what am I think? Tribes. Tribes. I'm thinking of Tribes. Uh, so he was one of the co-founders of Dynamics back in the day. Uh, so it's been, yeah. it's been really, uh, it's been really amazing to work uh, with him uh, for the last now six years. Yeah. Uh, because he has so much industry experience, you know, uh, and that's and I've been doing that ever since, um, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, but but yeah, I, I really think what it comes down to is that like even from like my childhood, I was just really sort of just innately interested in everything game development. Like I also remember doing things like you know I would I would assemble and create my own board games and just kind of force my peers to play them. <laughs> uh, they weren't necessarily very good, but I think that that just sort of early on showed that uh, that drive to to do that kind of thing. And honestly, I, I think that my uh, the, the, the reason that I really like game development in particular is that it just has so many pieces that all come together uh, in a way that's like really satisfying and rewarding to me. Yeah. You know, like you look at like the technical joy of, of, of coding and you look at art and like any kind of aesthetics, you look at writing and, and all of these like narrative appeals um, music composing, sound design, uh, just overall like mechanic design and, and then like, actual game design. And you have all of those components and they all come together to like create a greater whole. And I just, uh, it really speaks to me. Um, which is also why, you know, I've, I've really, especially during development of, of Quarter K even more so, never uh, tried as hard as I can to be as much of a generalist as I can. Um, uh, you know, like, becoming at least somewhat proficient in coding and composing music and making game art and designing mechanics and, you know, all those kind of things. Uh, I mean, even now I, I literally just spent the last two days, like just doing writing, like narratively for, for quarter K. And it's like, I'm not a professional writer, you know, <laughs> but getting to engage in that and, and, you know, within the context of something that I love, otherwise it's just really rewarding. Um, but anyway, the bottom line is I think I actually followed a pretty traditional <laughs> Uh, route towards game development um, in terms of, you know, really getting interested in game modding and, and sort of that kind of thing, and then just sort of taking it from there and and spinning off that. It's really, uh, 
not that different from a lot of right people, I think. Well, at this point, man, you're standing on the shoulders of giants and working with some of the absolute best in the in the business. Period. Like, I just uh, looking up Damon Sly. He made a ten tank killer. That's like an old DOS. Uh, yep. But but I live yep. in Tucson, right? And <laughs> so there's an air force base here, and they they are like the hub for a tens. So I see those planes flying all the time. If you go back and play um, Postal Two. There's a mm-hmm. part where you go to the military base, and they're also here in Tucson, and there's A-10s all over the place. So it's like that's the symbol of fucking freedom, baby, like super. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, Damon's fantastic. It's uh, I, I really love working with him and, and, you know, taking part of all he has. It's a lot of experience. <laughs> but <laughs> He's really gone good at from, In the course of three years, you've gone from, you know, this – this game that is just an abstract idea of like, I, I just want to make a game and it'll be a solo project and maybe I'll do something ambitious with it yep. to being published under the same brand as some of the greatest games that are like Wolfenstein, Duke Nukem. Uh, the list goes on. And yeah. On I, honestly, like the entire like three realms collaboration was of course incredibly uh, like astounding to me that that was, that, 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 that managed to happen. You know, I, uh, when I, invited I did not expect that uh, Realms Deep thing. That I'd never imagined that it was going to result in several people getting jobs. Like, <laughs> right? No, I know it's 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 fantastic, and especially since, uh, like, I personally, um, I'm still only working on Core Decay in my free time. Right? Like, I still have a full time job, uh, and so, and, and that's not like likely to change at any time in the near future. So. That's also like it's so nice to be able to work with uh, like 3D realms and Slipgate and really sort of uh, make sure that there is a a team of people who are you know able to move this forward when I have maybe a lot less time personally, um, so that my what I can do is more about overseeing the direction of the game and and you know making sure that it, it becomes what what I envisioned. Which is great because I think honestly, like if that hadn't happened, it we probably would have looked at another five years or so of development. Um, you know, because there's so much you can do in your spare time, and you know, I, you know, you got a full time job. Um, I'm married. Uh, I have you know so many like just everyday things you want to do uh, all the time. Um, so how much time do you have left for like hobbyist game development? It it varies, right? And so it's super, super nice to um, to really be able to have that like larger team of fantastic people just helping out and uh, and being a part of, of like bringing all of this to life. It's I'm super happy, super happy about that. No, it's uh, same thing for in the keep. Like it, I, I also have a full time job. I've got my wife just walked in here with my cat. Uh, I've got friends <laughs> and you know shit I have to take care of and the the scope of what in the keep has become originally it was just like yeah i'm just gonna like publish a podcast once a week and then it just got so much bigger and more than i could possibly manage so i think we're like we're nothing without our communities and our friends and the people we work no with. for sure for sure <sighs> that's all i really have for you man we've been on there for like an hour and 20 minutes Do you want to any uh, thoughts you have an idea of when the game might be released or just anything um 
it's uh, probably uh, too early to to give any sort of <laughs> any sort of like public estimation, uh, just because like things can always change, and I don't want to give people you know false hopes or expectations or you know anything like that. I for the time being, I, I really just want to take that uh, sort of Valvesque mindset of saying, well, it's 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 ready when it's ready, but know that we do have internally. It's like a very clear sense of of you know uh, the process. So we're not like it's it's not the kind of development where it's like oh we're just gonna slowly will away on it and it'll be ready someday. No, no, we have a very clear sense of when we want to get get it done. But I don't want to go out and say like share those exact estimations at this point uh, because you know things might always change and um, you know it'll it'll probably be sometime before i mean i can certainly say that like the the graven demo come out a few weeks ago um and immediately there were a lot of people who asked me okay are we gonna see a 40k demo so soon uh, no <laughs> that i can say uh you know there is there is not going to be something like that for a while um i think all all i really can say and want to say at this point is uh there will obviously be a lot more to find out at the next round steep so uh you know, <laughs> I had one actually. You, you brought brought up another point that I just wanted to ask you your opinion on, since you have experience with this. What is the point of the limited time demo? The like it's out for a week, and if you miss it, you miss it. Like I, I feel like that deters people from getting their hands on it. I don't know. I don't know what the idea is behind that. Yeah, I. Uh... I will say that, like, I, I agree with that viewpoint, I think. Um, uh, personally, I don't really, um, like, I don't know exactly what everyone's individual motivations uh, are, obviously. Um, I mean, in my experience, that's been something that's usually, it, it's usually been more of like a psychological, promotional kind of thing, uh, where, you know, obviously it's kind of a, by only giving you like a limited access to it over a limited time, it gets you like the, the, the thought process. Of course, it gets you more excited about it. But I, I'm sort of with you with you there that I I don't really personally see a. Uh, I think the, the the downsides are greater than any potential benefit there. That really, uh, it makes it it does indeed make more sense to just say, well, here's a demo and it's going to be available forever, or at least until we have something else that's a successor to it. I, I. You know, obviously, I can't speak for Graven specifically. I have no involvement in Graven's development process, and I have no idea what their reasoning and justifications and ideas are around that. Um, that's not at all. That's not my place to say. I will say though that uh, if it was up to me for like, if if we had if we were releasing this a similar kind of thing for Core Decay, my personal inclination would be to uh, not have it be time limited. But that is knowing what I know today, and there might obviously be. Um, uh, there might be reasons around that that I, you know, that I can't comprehend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my um, immediate reaction no. is like, that's insanity. Why would you do that? But I'm, I yeah. assume generally like, okay, well, Fred's got to be smarter than me. So yeah, I again, it's just it's not. I don't feel qualified to say at yeah. the end of the day. Essentially, that's it's just not. Um, but yeah, I, I'm on a surface level at least. I'm I'm with you there that I don't really, I don't really either see that the exact thinking there but i have to assume that there is you know that there is a good reason and i'm not going to speak for anyone else <laughs> <laughs> all right man 
Well, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you for a little while, and I think we should do it again. Uh, we can meet up when the demo comes out, Realms Deep maybe next year. Anytime you want, you're always welcome back on the show, even if you just want to talk about Deus Ex for another hour and a half. That's fine. Super happy to hear it. Oh, believe me, I could. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, really happy to be here. Uh, it's been it's been great just, just talking about the game and, and game development in general. And yeah, I'm happy to come on at any time. Live long and prosper. <laughs> Live long and prosper. All right, thank you very much to Ivar for making an appearance on the show. Finally, it's been a long time coming, and I deeply appreciate the time we spent together. I can't tell you how fucking amazing just being in the presence of such a brilliant mind is. There's a lot of them that come on the show, but Ivar in particular is just one of those guys that stands out. It's like there's He's a fire hydrant of creativity that just needs to be focused on one area and I know that he can do it now that he has the backing of 3D Realms. Thank you to Fred obviously as always for being amazing and putting his money and hard work and everything into these incredible games. Everyone at 3D Realms, not just him. But wow. Thank you to Amorpher for providing this awesome epic deep dark music that we're listening to right now you can find more about him on his Bandcamp page which of course I will leave in the episode notes for you to peruse his amazing catalog if you are looking for someone to do dark ambient music for a soundtrack there is no one better than a morpher we gotta say thank you to all of our wonderful supporters and there is a new one for the new year how amazing is that Paul, Moose, Dot, Zach, Alexander, Brad, Red Eyes Anthony, Robert, Jack, Brandy, Fred, Lord Revan, and Zan. The Zan. Yeah, that Zan. I am humbled. The Drowned God Cathala loves all of you. It, it is absolutely amazing that I do this silly little podcast and it means enough to these people who I've named that their hard-earned dollar they see it worth their time to put it towards this project and I assure you I can't say everything right now but I assure you it is going to a good place and I hope that you're all very satisfied with where you end up seeing it for those out there who are listening and like how can I support in the keep go to in the keep.com forward slash support there's all kinds of ways to do it we have affiliate links I'm not going to name them all off today because who cares uh, except to you, perhaps, maybe, huh? Check them out. Amazon <laughs> is on there. There's a couple other ones. Check them out. Doesn't matter. But you can also just like go to our merch store, uh, buy a t-shirt. We get the brand new logo, the brand new Sigil of Cathala designed by the great and awesome Uncle Had. It is beautiful. It is on all of our merch now. You can buy it right now. Do that. If you become a Patreon supporter, you will get all of our content early. All of In The Keeps content early. I can't promise you'll get the new Burning with Bridges with Bridge Burner or whatever early, but you will, in fact, get In The Keep as early as I can possibly provide it to you when I'm done editing it. Uh, great things on the horizon, though, man. It's a 2020 was a shit deck year for a lot of people. 
it was a good year for in the keep i won't hide that we did really really well for ourselves and i hope that you find a way if you're in a difficult situation or just follow your passion and find a way to like make your dreams come true i really hope you do and i hope that by listening to this podcast you find the motivation you need but you know it's time to say goodbye i'll see you again next week i can't express how much it means to me to spend the time that i do my free time producing this piece of content whatever it happens to be whatever week you're listening to i mean obviously if you're listening to me talking right now it's this week but i mean anything go back through the catalog check it all out this is uh this is my life's work and i'm very proud of it and i hope that you find something you're proud of too i love you the drunk katala loves you Till next time, stay in the keep.